And we'll go ahead and start with verse 1. It says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what He has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For we are, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, Second Corinthians is a letter addressing a previous letter written by Paul to the Corinthian church. He wrote the previous letter addressing many of the abuses taking place within the church, specifically the abuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and neglecting to address obvious sin. Among all the blessings God had bestowed on this fellowship, a standard of holy living wasn't being upheld. Thus, carnality ran rampant. And Paul, addressing many of these areas in his first letter, wrote this letter because he had heard of how they responded to this letter. He knew they were broken. He knew they responded in a positive way. But they also were extreme. He heard from Titus of their mourning, specifically those things that Paul had addressed to them. But he also heard of their earnest desire and their zeal for Paul. 
You could pick this up in chapter 7, verse 7. He appreciated their response and their willingness to obey. In 2 Corinthians 7, 11, it says, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed. You Corinthians sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This is, a, this is Paul's response. He, he saw how they responded to his letter. I've entitled this message tonight, The Heart of God's Ambassadors. Because as you read this letter, you can't help notice how Paul is pouring out his heart towards his Corinthian fellowship. He mentions in chapter 6 how his heart was wide open to them. And as ministers of God, it was demonstrated, demonstrated through tribulations, distress, stripes, imprisonment, tumults, sleeplessness, and labor. Read chapter 6 and you're, you'll get the sense of Paul's self-sacrifice and his love for this Corinthian fellowship. You know, I like when I read the scripture, I like to think that they're writing it to me. Because it makes it more personal to me. They're just not words on a page. Because Paul was a real person writing to real people. Also bear in mind that Paul was well aware that there were false brethren attaching themselves to the churches he helped establish. It seems like wherever he went, man, they followed and they entrenched themselves. He says, you know, there are are perils of false brethren. So simultaneously, he was answering allegations these false brethren may have had towards him. These detractors attacked his character. They challenged his authority. After all, you know, he didn't have letters of commendation from Jerusalem. Yet we know his commendation came directly from God. They questioned his sincerity. No doubt they questioned his method and how he interpreted the law. And Paul was combating all these attempts to overthrow his authority at Corinth. And so it goes with those who do the work of ministry. When When you begin to get involved, attacks will come. Because wherever the work of God is, there's the enemy ready to undermine any good thing. Especially the work of God. There's a challenge of the world around us, but there's also the challenge within the church. And regardless of those challenges, Paul is pouring out his heart and demonstrating. He's demonstrating for you and for me what an ambassador should look like. Here in chapter 5, there are a couple of elements regarding the heart of God's ambassadors. First, we see their desire in verses 1 through 8. Then we see their hope in verses 9 through 11. And then we see their objective in verses 12 through 21. And it's unfortunate as we, we read verse 1 of this chapter because the real chapter break should at least begin in verse 16 of chapter 4. As a matter of fact, let me back up so we can get a little flavor of what really is going on here. He says in verse 16, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then he jumps into verse 1. 
And, and let's look at the first, our first uh, thought here is, is the, the heart of an ambassador is their desire in verses 1 through 8. He, he says here in verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed or dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul is telling us what happens when we die, physically, that we go before the Lord. Since our spirit resides in a physical body, what happens to us? What happens to our bodies? He says we have a heavenly body awaiting us. Once we die, we're going to receive another body prepared for us by God. We're not born all over again. Okay? Though we are born again spiritually, and we're not reincarnated as some like to suggest, we're going to get a new body. I mean, if, if we were cars, we'd get a new chassis. If we were living under the ocean, we'd get a scuba suit. If you wanted to go to space, we put on a space suit. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brethren, I say this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, this body is not capable of entering heaven. God has to prepare a new body for us, a perfect body, one free from sin and corruption, a heavenly body. I could just see as Paul, as he's penning these words, and he is a tent maker. And he's illustrating for you and for me exactly what, uh, what happens to us when we die. He says our bodies are like tents. And God is preparing for our, our spirits a building, an eternal building, a building not made by hands, but by him personally. And he, being a tent maker, understood that tents are just temporary shelters. They're not permanent. How many of us would go to Big Five and go buy a tent and say, this is where I'm going to live? We know it's, just, it's a temporary dwelling place. And with enough use, you know it's going to break down. In heaven, our glorified bodies will be our eternal homes. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, it tells us when Jesus returns for his own, he's going to give us new bodies. He's going to join our spirits with our new bodies, all together at the same time. And notice in verse 2, he says, For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. For in this we groan. Paul describes what he feels and what others feel in waiting for this fulfillment to occur. He groans. And that word is the word stenazo. And it means to sigh, to groan from within. And Paul uses this word twice. He uses it here in verse 2 and also in verse 4. And I think most of us, when we think of groaning and sighing, uh, we sometimes think that it's kind of attributed to being painful. Something that's just with, with, with pain. You know, we groan in pain. And I guess, I guess it all depends on one's perspective, but Paul is expressing a groaning from being burdened. And that, bur- that burden he was experiencing was for the eternal. That's what he was groaning about. He's not desire. You know, the one thing I appreciate about Paul as I look at this passage is that he's not desirous of the things of the world. He's groaning for the things of the eternal. He wants to go to heaven. And that is what he's groaning about. 
And I think he has good reason. Let me tell you why he has good reason. Turn to first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 here in the same book. Turn to verse 23. And he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. You think about that, folks. Five times he received a scourging. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That means he was out in the ocean floating around for, really, a day and a night. I don't know about you, but that's not a great place to be. I can only imagine as he's floating out there, Lord, what is it you have? And he knew God would deliver him. He had purposes. He had had, uh, designs for his life. He says, In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil... In sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my concern for all the churches. All these things that, that you and I just looked at, those are just obstacles. His, his objective was the care for the church. Not a building, people. That is what he had in view. People. Ushering people into the kingdom. And I'll touch on that in a little bit. Paul was ready, man. He didn't need another experience to add to his resume. He didn't have a death wish. He just wanted to be used of the Lord. And he was expecting the Lord to come back at any time. He was expectant. He was looking to be further clothed, not with a tent, but with a new building. He knew this life was temporal. Let me ask you tonight, what burdens you the most? Is it money, the finances? Is it your spouse? Is it the nightly news? You know, Ebola, ISIS, Russia. Does does that burden you? Because you know all that does is it produces groaning, but the different type of groaning. It produces dissatisfaction. Don't say your eyes on this present world. Is but for a moment. Set your focus on the on your future glorification, and maybe that's what you need to hear tonight. Because we're so distracted. Henry said that earlier. We're so distracted with the stuff of the world. Second Corinthians, as we just read in chapter four, verse seventeen, eighteen, says, "For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory." While we do not look at the things which are what? Seen. But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are what? Temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul, in all that he went through, considered those things (laughs) a light affliction. When he compared them to the eternal. Let me ask you another question. How many stripes have you received? How many beatings have you experienced for being a Christian? Have you ever been shipwrecked or stoned for your faith? 
Have you ever been without clothing or suffered from the elements? For Christ? We live in Disneyland. We know what that's like. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from God. First we saw to receive the eternal, now we see to be present with the Lord, verses 5 through 8. He says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God is not surprising us with some esoteric information. He's preparing us for our eventual departure, whether it's a natural death or the rapture. It's not a mystery. What we don't know is what our new bodies are going to look like or what heaven looks like. And, I, and how do I know this is going to happen? How do we know that we're going to have new bodies? Or how do we know that the rapture will take place? How do we know these things? Well, he tells us here. He gives us the Spirit as his guarantee. And that word guarantee is the word Arabon. The word is a technical term. It's a legal term. It, it it's, it means first installment, a deposit, if you will, a down payment, a pledge. It pays part of the item being purchased. It secures a legal claim to the item, which in turn activates a binding contract. In any case, Arabon is a payment which obligates the, the contracting party to make further payments. You know, it's interesting, as this word developed in the modern Greek world, Erebon is also used as the engagement ring. In other words, if you accept or are accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's also a betrothal. He's given us his spirit as a type of engagement ring. And one day he's going to come back for his bride. And that's who we are. He's going to come back for you and me because we are his bride. And either of these two definitions carry the idea of commitment, whether it's the purchasing of an item or the promise of a future marriage, they both imply commitment. And when I read the scriptures, he is committed to us. Now, he's not talking about salvation. The work of salvation was complete at the cross. Jesus said himself, it is finished. He's going to bring us into his kingdom, folks. We have the spirit of the living God living in each and every one of us. However, I need to mention this. There is one distinction that I need to make tonight. If you're not a believer of Jesus Christ, you're not his. You know, you say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. What? He, you're not his. He does not live in you. I'm sorry, but that's biblical. If you don't know him, he does not live in you. And I'm going to touch that in a few moments, but just please track with me. But imagine, if you will, the Spirit of God, the one that hovered over the waters in the book of Genesis, is living in each believer. In John 16, we're told that the Spirit is our helper. He will guide us into all truth. He will not speak of His own authority, but what He hears. He would speak of things to come, and He will glorify Jesus. All of that existing in us. And the Spirit, He says, that's right and that's wrong. This is good and that's evil. And you know that. 
Intuitively, you know that. When you go somewhere, it's not like, hey, you know, I'm this really intelligent guy. No, you know, you get a check in your heart. And that's the Spirit of God convicting, moving your heart. It says, that's right and that's wrong. And you guys know that wherever you go, whether it's a movie theater, the music you listen to, wherever you're at, God begins to, to stir your hearts. It's not fanciful emotions. And then He takes the Word and applies it to your heart. And He speaks to you. And there's no one that needs to convince you. Because he is a spirit of truth. Furthermore, we have a different privilege with the Holy Spirit than the Israelites did in the Old Testament before Jesus came. The difference is the Holy Spirit didn't live in believers as he does today. Yes, he came upon believers. Yes, he at moments moved in in people who, who were the people of God. Yes, he came upon them in different circumstances, but he did not live in them as he does today. For example, David prayed in Psalm 51, 11, Do not cast me away from your presence, O Lord, and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Why would he pray that? Today, 1 Corinthians 3 to 16 tells us, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells, or in the, as the Greek says, lives in you? We are the temple of God. This was something new. And with this powerful truth in mind, Paul states, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Paul states we are always confident. He had this assurance that God would be with him, and he was going to be working through him until he was done, until he departed. He was confident. And you know what's interesting about the word here? It means courage. He was confident, but that word is courage. Paul was emboldened. Why? Because though he was still in his body, he understood that the spirit of the living God was in him and moving through him and using him. And the moment that he was absent from the body, he would be present before the Lord. He had that assurance. That's why he could say in verse 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Regardless of what I see, and, and, and please listen, Regardless of what I see with my eyes, that doesn't generate faith. Because what we see with our eyes is passing away. It's temporal. However, believing in the unseen, the eternal, that's insight. That's faith. We have eyesight and we have insight. Putting my trust in the eternal. Again, verse 18, I'm going to read that again. I'm going to keep hammering this away. He says, while we do not look at the things which are, folks, seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are what? Temporary. Fading away, folks. This building ain't going to be here forever. If you have a home, you're constantly working on it, right? To keep it up. It's temporary. But the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. They're eternal. And what is eternal? The expressed will of God. The word of God. You know, some people say, well, you know, faith is a leap into the dark. Uh, We're not leaping into ignorance, folks. That's what that is. A leap in the dark is a leap into ignorance. We have the scriptures. That's what we're leaping into. We're leaping into the light. He says, we are confident, yes, well, pleased, rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, verse 8. Paul is saying 
there is only one of two places for the believer. You're either going to be here on earth or you're going to be in, or you're, you're going to be in, at home with the Lord. And there's an interesting play of words here. The word absent is the Greek word ektomeo, and it occurs only three times in the Bible. And it's used only here in these three verses, in verses 6, 8, and 9. And that word means to be away from your home. Being absent from the home. And conversely, the word present is used three times in the very same verses, and it means to be at home. Don't you wish you just said that rather than saying absent and present? It says, you know, because if we read it, verse 6 says, So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent, away, away from our dwelling place, from the Lord. And then verse 8, For we are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be, what, away from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether absent or away from, to be pleasing to Him. That's what the words are. To be away from the home or to be at home. So what Paul is saying is he prefers to be at home with the Lord. He's not saying, hey man, I got a death wish. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, yeah, I want to die. That's not what he's saying. He wants to be with the Lord. And that should be our desire. Let me ask you this. I don't know of any Christian that doesn't say that they don't want to be with the Lord. I mean, who would argue against that? No, I don't want to go just yet. Do you know anybody? I sure don't. Every Christian I know wants to go home. That should be everyone's desire. Boy, if I had that option, I'd leave right now. I personally believe that if it's the desire of every believer to be present with the Lord, because if the Spirit of God is in you, then you've tasted those good things. You've tasted how good He is. And He's put eternity into our hearts. And that's that's what we long for. I also believe as Paul is sharing these thoughts with the Corinthians, he was expressing that he he has no intention of lording over them or manipulating them like some of the false brethren were suggesting. He's contrasting himself against these evil men. Notice also what Paul was instructing, that there was no such thing as soul sleep, where the body just goes into the grave and our spirits go to sleep. That's not what he's saying. He says... To be absent from the body is to be present or at home with the Lord. Also, there is no waiting room or limbo or purgatory. This verse settles all that. The emphasis behind this verse and in verse 3 is that there is no such thing as a disembodied spirit. And his focus is the, the temporal versus the eternal. He says, we are confident. We have the assurance, folks. Christians are on a pilgrimage. We're either on our way to heaven or we're already there. That's it. We're in a pilgrimage. The danger for some of us, gang, is you like this place too much. We get our eyes off of heaven and this world begins to attract us. You know, the scripture tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. It's true. The closer you hang out to folks that aren't Christians, you begin to do the things that they do. Or you involve yourself in things you shouldn't be involved in. And we get our eyes off the prize. 
It trips us up. It stifles our life. And maybe some of you are here living in doubt. You need to hear the word of the Lord. Let's look at their hope in verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Paul's saying, Knowing we have a certain expectation of heaven, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to Him. You know, I've been involved in church for, gosh, 20, 22 years. Matter of fact, I was going through um, a binder I have of uh, application for our children's ministry. And what was interesting was, as I was going through, I happened to find mine. And it was dated, well, put you this way. I was off on a Wednesday. I picked up the binder on a Thursday. And actually, it was a day off I had. It was exactly 22 years earlier. It was this month. And I look at that and I start to reflect. And, I, and for good reason. Because you begin to remember certain key events in ministry. And you realize, man, people have just a weird view of church. They have just the, their perception about serving. And it, it always amazes me that, you know, Xavier teaches here week in and week out. And there are folks who come here and they just sit in for worship and they leave. Or they sit in the study and immediately after the study, they're gone. They don't even know where the coffee shop is. They don't fellowship with anybody. And part of that, I understand people, you know, they have, you know, they're they're busy with family. But for the most part, they're not involved. They don't know anybody. They don't know. They don't have the phone number of another Christian. They, They just come to church. And so they have these weird views. Then you have some folks who are interested in serving, but they're interested in serving their way. And all they want is recognition. They want to be seen. They don't want to clean. They don't want to pick up. They just want to show up when they want. And usually it's late. Or they don't show up at all because after all, I'm just a volunteer. Could you imagine if you went home and your kids responded to you that way? I'm just a volunteer. It doesn't work. If this is the way you approach church, I guarantee you, you're not pleasing him. Coming to church is one thing, but being the church is quite another. Church to me is like a home. And in every home, everyone has a part or a function. And if you're not fulfilling your part, you're derelict in your duties. You're derelict in your duties. Do you want to know if he is well pleased with you? It's not only seen in your serving, but how we conduct ourselves during difficulties, during the trials. Maybe you're going through a difficulty right now. Maybe you've lost your job or there's tension in the workplace because you are a Christian. Whatever that is, are you making it your aim to please him wherever you are at? Paul says we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. It didn't matter to him that he was jumping from boat to boat or he was hungry or he was naked. He made it his aim to please him. And Paul wanted to please him. Think about this, folks. Paul was a Pharisee. His life was centered religiously on pleasing God. He wanted to please him. He had a knowledge, but without, I'm sorry, he had a zeal without knowledge. 
he was going about it the wrong way. He chased down Christians. He made them blaspheme at the name, at the name of Christ from the edge of the sword. He sought out to destroy the church. Yet God in his mercy reaches out to this man on the Damascus road. And he's converted. He's changed. And all Paul wants to do now is please him. The question tonight is, are you pleasing him? By the way, if Jesus Christ is not your Savior, you cannot please God. You may sit here and say, I'm religious. You are not pleasing God. You're spinning your wheels. It starts with Him. If you've never made a decision for Christ, hopefully we can give you the opportunity tonight. In a little bit. But Paul made the same decision. Now, here's another reason we want to be well-pleasing to Him. Look at verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. First of all, let me just say that Paul is not talking about the great white throne judgment seen in Revelation 20. God will one day sit as the judge of the universe to proclaim judgment to all those who rejected Christ. And there is also a judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, where he is going to reward all those that belong to him. Two different judgments. In the book of Revelation, it's a throne. Here, it's the Bema seat. It's an elevated seat. The world has this idea that if there is a God, that somehow he's going to weigh the good with the bad, right? He's going to put everything in the balances, right? And, and, and he's gonna, people think, well, you know what? If God's a reasonable God, he'll, he'll see that I'm more good than bad. Well, if this is the view you hold, let me just say it's not a biblical one. I'd like for you to show me that in the Bible because it's not there. That's not how God operates. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, when I get in trouble, if I get pulled over, I get a ticket. Let's say I'm on the freeway, and let's say I'm maneuvering through traffic, and, and I'm you know, very negligent, and, and the policeman pulls me over, the high patrolman, and he says, okay, we're getting you for you know, uh, speeding and, and reckless driving, and he just writes up a list of infractions, right? When I go to court, that judge is not going to say, okay, how much good did you do? Is he going to ask me that? The only thing he's focused on is on the, the infractions. Well, let me tell you something, folks. You reject Christ on that great day when you're sitting there in front of God and all alone in his throne room and he's passing judgment. He's not going to say the good things you've done. As a matter of fact, he's going to point out every bad thing you've done. Think about that. Where did that come from? There's nothing good in us. That's why we go to court, because we're busted. As believers, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ, not to decide salvation, nor to decide whether or not we deserve heaven. That was all determined again at the cross. Jesus said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 5.24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. There is no indication from Scripture as to a believer going to judgment to the judgment seat for salvation. 
nor will he ever stand before the great white throne. Praise the Lord. You and I as believers will not stand before the great white throne. That's reserved for those who've rejected Christ. This judgment seat or the bema seat is reserved only for us, the believer. The non-believer receives no rewards. Again, I don't care how good you think you are. You say, well, I've done a lot. I've given, you know, Bill Gates, a great philanthropist. He's given his money to good works. Do you think that's going to save him? No. If you reject Christ, that will not save you. Now, God's not going to say, hmm, wow, you did a lot of good stuff. We're going to come before his beam of seat for rewards. The non-believer will not receive one reward. If you know Christ, you will be rewarded. The non-believer lives a life of futility. A life of futility. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, you're living a life of futility. The sum total of your life will be a zero at the end. For the believer, we arrive, as it were, before his seat in his righteousness. Think about that. Often I used to think, oh, I come before the Lord and here I'm standing before Him. No, I'm standing there in His righteousness and He's going to reward me for the labors I've done unto Him. That blew me away. I really started to ponder that. Lord, that's an amazing truth. I'm going to stand in Your righteousness and You're going to reward me. If you go to Corinth today, archaeologists have uncovered a marble-covered structure which they're able to identify as a seat of judgment, the Bema seat. And the Bema seat, again, had two uses in Paul's day, one for judgment in the legal sense and the other to award a prize. In Paul's day, the Isthmian Games was a huge event. It was second to the Olympics. And what was the prize awarded to the winner of those games? You know what it was? A wilted celery wreath. It wasn't a fresh one. It was a wilted celery wreath. I mean, these people boxed. They sang. Singing was actually an event. Uh, they wrestled. And there was no second place or third place. You know, the Olympics, we give them gold, silver, and bronze. No, you got a wilted celery wreath. When Paul came before the Roman proconsul in Corinth, he could have very well stood at that beam of seat they uncovered. You can pick that up in Acts 18. Do you realize the things which you're going to be rewarded for are prescribed by God? Ephesians 2 tells us we are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has assigned these good works for us, and He's prepared them in advance for you and for me. God-given tasks for us to fulfill. And, and he's going to reward us. He says, here's this, here's this objective I need you to accomplish. And guess what? When you complete it, there's a reward waiting for you. Man, he's done it all. I'm not that bright. But he says, son, I'm giving you my righteousness. I've got works for you to do, and I'm going to reward you. Man. Talk about God's grace. God, again... 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work 
will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which is which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. The day will come when each and every one of us will stand before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to give an account for our stewardship. And we're going to be there all alone, just us. I mean, we're all there, but individually, before Him. Sure, we might fool some people on this side of heaven, but when we're in His presence, all those things that have no lasting value will be consumed. What a day. What a day. And it's no wonder he says in the next verse, <coughs> verse 11, knowing therefore the terror or the fear of the Lord, we, what? Persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Knowing. Interesting word. In the Greek it means perception, but more importantly it means to have a full knowledge. Knowing. And this is something we all need to understand. We're either going to stand before Him forgiven, ready to receive uh, rewards for the works He has given us to do, or there are going to be some of those standing before His throne for judgment. He says, knowing therefore, this is something now embedded deep within us, the terror or the fear of the Lord to persuade men. Is this a present reality in your life tonight? Co-workers, unsaved friends, Family members, if you know this, what have you done to persuade them? I'm going to go home and watch some TV. Oh, you know, I'm just going to go hang out and watch a movie. I'm going to go to a basketball game. Again, nothing wrong with those things. But when you have opportunity and God presents the opportunity, that's something he holds us responsible for. Knowing that our co-workers, our schoolmates, our friends, our parents will one day stand before the great white throne. Weren't you persuaded? Well, you don't understand. I'm not good at presenting the gospel, Fernando. Folks, if this building exploded on fire and the ceiling is ready to cave in to engulf the sanctuary, wouldn't you be moved with a sense of urgency? I would think so. And that's what we're talking about here. Today's church is losing that sense of urgency. Let's be the church God wants us to be. And let's move with purpose. Let's move knowing the fear of the Lord because He is coming. Take a look at the, the world around us. It's falling apart at the seams. And many of us are content to watch it just happen. Again, as Paul exhorted us, are you pleasing Him? Is that your aim? We've seen their desire, their hope. Now let's look at their objective here in verses 12 through uh, 21. It says here, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we recite ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Now, folks, if you've done any studying of, of Paul's life, it doesn't take long to fi- to figure out He had an amazing life. And he impacted many for centuries. He still does. 
No doubt he came from an affluent family, studied under Gamaliel, was a Pharisee, and and being a Pharisee, usually you had a wife. Now, I wonder if he was married and maybe things soured because, you know, they were Jews and all of a sudden he was radically changed and was in love with the Lord. And she says, I ain't having any of that. Maybe she left. She left the marriage. And among his peers, none of them even came close. He was a prodigy of sorts. And most Pharisees in his day had a measure of wealth. And I can imagine he did too. And he begins to hear the rumblings of a new sect of Jews committing their faith in the person, and that's the person of Christ. He begins to become enraged. And he feels like, you know what? I'm going to do God a service. I'm going to eradicate this movement. And he's so vehement, he goes and he chases Christians down. And you guys know the story. Again, he proceeds to Damascus, hoping to upend this movement. And there on the road, he meets the risen Lord. And he's never the same. And and what does he say in verse 14? He says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. He says, For the love of Christ compels us. Doesn't sound like the same man years earlier, does it? Doesn't sound like the, the same vindictive person. Notice it wasn't religion that changed him. He already went through that. And he wasn't paying it forward or he wasn't trying to atone for his past sins. It was the love of Christ that drove him. Jesus had become the master passion of his life. The love, the agape of Jesus Christ. When someone experiences the love of Jesus Christ, he is wrecked. He is never the same. And it's kind of a a hard thing to actually reject. you got to be pretty hard to walk away from that. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I guess this doesn't work for the Calvinists, but be as it may. Paul no longer lived for himself, but for him who died for him. Who are you living for? What are you living for? Jesus is either sitting on the throne of your heart or you are. You used to, you know, drink and do drugs and you come to Christ and you say, oh, you know, things are good. And then before you know it, you're back to drinking and doing drugs or now you're fornicating and now you're lying. So, well, Fernando, I just tell little white lies. No big thing. Folks, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. You may be sitting here going, you know what, Fernando? This message you're, you're giving, is, it's kind of irritating me. It's bothering me. I don't like what I'm hearing. Well, I, I hope it is bothering you. Um, because I really would like you to, I prefer that you stop living the way you are and living for Christ. Then we can get along. I guarantee you. Because if this is bothering you, then maybe something's not right in your life. And you need to get right. And you start living for Him. I get wearied of hearing how I hear Christians, some from this fellowship, they're out there drinking. They say, well, I have the liberty to drink. And they're getting tattoos. I got the liberty to get tattoos. Well, guess what? You're stumbling my kids. And you're stumbling the kids of this fellowship because now they look like the world. And you're acting like the world. There's no difference. Folks, we're supposed to be the church. 
We're pleasing ourselves rather than pleasing Him. We're supposed to please Him. I say all that because we're supposed to be different. What's it say in verse 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If anyone appreciated this truth, it was Paul. He went from a mean, venomous, religious zealot to where God made him a new creature. He had a lot to be forgiven for. A lot. When you have folks at the edge of the sword and telling them to blaspheme the name of Christ, you have a lot to be forgiven for. And he's been given a new nature. The natural man apart from Christ has a bent for sin because he was born in it. He needs a new nature. Christ comes in, gives him a new nature and his spirit, and now he has the potential to live above his sin. Listen, this is what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3 regarding the new birth, about being born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus to spend three hours on top of a mountaintop meditating or outlining a a list of, of deeds for him to do. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. As a matter of fact, when you read John chapter 3, Nicodemus doesn't even ask the question. Nicodemus is talking to him and, and as if Jesus just knows everything about us, as we know, he just tells him, you must be born again. He's, Nicodemus said, I didn't ever even ask the question. You must be born again. Or you will not see the kingdom of God. In the same chapter, verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now here's where we have to be careful when someone comes to faith. We say, well, how so? Because you and I sometimes get hung up on a person's past. The person comes to faith. We're excited, but then they get saved and we're like, I know him. Be so careful. We should be excited with them. We should be encouraging. It's a new birth. We need to direct people in the Lord. They're infants in the Lord. Don't take opportunity. Be careful. They're new creatures, man, with an incredible potential. Now notice an ambassador's objective is also to reconcile man to God. Notice verse 18. He says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice all things are of God. He doesn't say that Alcoholics Anonymous psychology, or several hours of meditation will get us closer to God. Our lives are changed. And I mean changed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, regenerating us. The moment Christ comes into our hearts, we are changed forever. And we are never the same. I mean, what did he say earlier in in verse 16? We do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, the act of regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not man's methods. I was talking to a young man today. He he works at at a psychological um, 
for lack of a better term, building. And, you know, he, he, he likes and he doesn't like it. It's a job. And, and in, our, in our conversation, he says, you know, uh, um, people come in and, and once you sign off on being medically treated, he says, at that point, they're allowed to give you any medication they want. And he says, and these are powerful drugs. And as we began to talk, you know, these are conditions that people go through. So if you're depressed, they'll give you this. And the next day, if you're agitated, they'll give you something else. And so they're always giving you something to deal with the issue of the day. And I said, you know what's sad is God has given the believer his Holy Spirit to live above all that. And when we're suffering, when we, we feel anxious or we're feeling depressed, well, you don't think God can meet those needs? He's, ex- he's expecting us for, for us to raise our hands and cry out to Him, not for man's methods. Because I'll tell you what, all those things, will, it's just a vicious cycle. You'll be back for the next med. And we sat there and we agreed. Man is smart. He says, there's something very telling. He says, you know, the same things that people experience here, they experience in other parts of the world, and they treat them, not with medication, and they're fine. He says, but here is such a vicious cycle and there's a lot of money involved that they just keep medicating people. Well, folks, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. You want change? Rely on Him. And you're going to see that change. You know, evolutionists and atheists are always looking for something to validate their position. And they're pretty creative. Since they cannot find any transitional forms within a species... They theorize that maybe, just maybe, there's been a movement in the force where the process of evolution just happened in an instant. And they call it punctuated equilibrium. It's like lightning. It just struck. All of a sudden there's, hey, new species. Well, I'm here to testify that, you know what, they're right. In Christianity, it's true. You say, well, what do you mean? I don't like where this is going. You see, the moment a person receives Christ as Savior, that person instantly becomes a new creature. Yeah, I believe in punctuated equilibrium. It's in the Bible. Instantly new. You're different. There's no evolutionary process. There isn't a series of steps or or a card to fill out. It's instant. You're a new creature. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And he explains what that is in verse 19. He says, That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation. The earliest use of the word kataleg was for business. The money changers. It was an accounting term. But in the process of time, it changed and it meant to adjust, to make up the difference, to restore, to reconcile the account. You know, it was used in the context of marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, where the scripture says that if a wife left her husband, she was to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Be reconciled. And the word is used here twice in this chapter. And it is God. He's the one seeking to reconcile the world unto himself. He is saying man is coming up short in his accounting. And there's no way, no way he'll ever make it balance out. 
Because I'll, I'll make up the difference. I'll give them, I'll impute my righteous, righteousness to them, and then it'll balance out. I'm reconciling the world to myself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And again, that took place at the cross. You know, uh, recently my brother, um, you know, his car broke down and he's trying to get to work. And uh, he calls up Uber. And you say, well, what's Uber? Uber is like a taxi service. Um, and so he calls up uh, Uber and they pick him up and, and they, he's going to work. And he's sitting there and he begins to talk to the driver. And he says, you know, where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm from Iran. Oh, you're from Iran. He goes, yes, Iran. So okay. So uh, what do you believe in? And you start talking and he says, okay. So uh, he says, I'm a Muslim. So you're a Muslim. Okay. So um, who is Jesus Christ to you? Oh, he's a good teacher. Oh, he's a good teacher. Oh, do you know that Jesus loves you and he loves you so much he died on the cross for you and he, he died to take your sins away? And he says, what did Muhammad do? And he says, well, Muhammad was the prophet. And that's all he said. You see, and, and he never got around to answering the question of sin. And that's what religious icons are. They never answer the question of sin. You want to see God? Look at the cross. That's God Almighty on the cross paying for your sins. Reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them. But what was he doing with their sins? Burying them himself. And when God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, what does that exactly mean? It means that the wrath that you should have experienced fell on him. When they arrested him in the garden and they led him away and they began to interrogate him, the high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they began to beat him and spit on him. And then when they released him, they released him to the Romans. And the Romans, well, we know what they do. They beat him. They stripped him. They put a bag over his head, insulted him, pulled his beard, placed a crown of thorns on his head. And then they began to scourge him. They took his clothes off, laid him across a, a rough stump, stretched him out, used a cat of nine tails, ripped the flesh from his body. Then they nailed him to a cross. That was God reconciling the world to himself. What, is, what does Paul say? It's the love of God that compels us. Folks, we've all been given this ministry of reconciliation. And it's important for all of us to understand and embed in our hearts and our minds. Persuading men of the gospel, compelled by the love of Christ. Why? Because verse 20 says we are his ambassadors. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God are pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors. Look, the Corinthians understood ambassadors more than we would. The, as the Romans conquered key cities throughout the world, it was necessary for them to establish Roman authority. So they would send ambassadors. And ambassadors, Roman ambassadors, exercised the full authority of Rome. Yet we've been given ambassadorship, not from a Roman empire, but from a heavenly one. You and I, we have the full authority of heaven. 
We are ambassadors acting on behalf of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And set before us, before you and I, is a Christ-rejecting world. That's what we're facing as ambassadors for Christ. We've been placed as ambassadors here in this city at this time. You and I. We didn't live 100 years ago. We didn't, we're not living 200 years from now. We're living during this time. And there's people out there who are dying, who don't know Christ. And you're going to touch people I'll never meet. Friends, family. You have a sphere of influence you have. And people are looking at you. What kind of ambassador are you? <laughs> we don't understand. Uh, uh, I, I'm just a store clerk. You're an ambassador. Uh, uh, I'm a car salesman. You're an ambassador. I'm an attorney. God help you. But you're an ambassador. God, God has enabled you to be an attorney for a reason. You're an ambassador. You've been endowed with the full authority of God to present the gospel. You are ambassadors. We feel ill-equipped. Yeah, we are ill-equipped. But the Spirit of God is fully equipped. If He lives in you, He will use you. Again, the question is, what kind of ambassador are you? Are you oppressive? Are you cruel? Or are you loving? Oh, these people deserve hell. Or, oh man, these people are going to hell. Lord, give me a door of opportunity. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of condemnation. And what is our message? Verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The message for the ambassador is that a perfect being, flawless, pure, undefiled, who never sinned, took on our sins. You could be a child molester, a drunkard, a meth head, a pothead, a wife beater, adulterer, thief, or a liar. And he became, he took on himself that sin. Think about it. The most vile thing you could think of, he took upon himself. All himself. He assumed our guilt. Why? That we, we might become the righteousness of God in him. That when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ on us. And you know what I see in this room? People who have the righteousness of God. Hard to believe that, huh? That we have the Spirit of God and that we have His righteousness. So I don't feel so righteous. It's not a feeling, folks. It's believing that work He did at the cross. That I have His righteousness. We are His ambassadors. I said I say because sometimes we struggle with our own flesh. Especially when we look at each other, don't we? we look at each other in the room and go, eh, I know him. He ain't that nice. Folks, we're in process. We're in process. So, so to, to finalize, to conclude here, folks, Paul's an ambassador of Jesus Christ and he's pouring out his heart before us that we too know that we're going to heaven. We're going to have a new body. And to know that our friends and family could have one too. That we're going to receive rewards. That we're to be persuading men knowing the fear of the Lord. That we're here to please Him. And we're to reconcile men to God. We're ambassadors, folks. Let's pray. Father, we just come to You in Jesus' name. And Lord, that we would just 
grab on to this truth, Lord, that we are your ambassadors. Lord, that we don't represent a corrupt Roman empire, Lord, but an incorruptible heavenly empire. And Lord, I pray that as we serve, Lord, we would do it because we're compelled because of the love you have for us. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, tonight's your opportunity. You may be sitting here thinking, this makes a lot of sense when it used to make nonsense. And I just pray that if this is a decision you want to make tonight, you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that where you're at. And all you have to do is repeat these words. It's just a, a prayer of faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I believe that he is the Savior, that he is your Son, and that he died for my sins. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, lead me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. When we stand and let's worship.